I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. What, so Newsom won the uh, recall election? Why am I supposed to care? It's California. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's a, it's a no-name place that nobody cares about. I live in big-time Minneapolis. Oh, hello. Uh, welcome to the mansion of Leaves of Glen. It's a fun little bit where I pretend to record my podcast from a giant mansion with a bunch of rooms in it, and it sounds all fancy, and I'm not just sitting in my basement with egg cartons nailed to the wall. Uh, I also read the hottest public domain books, short stories. This week, we're going to read The Hound of the Baskervilles by Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, well, learn a little bit uh, about the author. Yeah, you sure you do. You're, you're just a inquisitive man like myself. Uh, Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle uh, was born the 22nd of May, 1859, and he died the 7th of July, 1930 had a full life. He's a British author and a physician. <laughs> and he created the character Sherlock Holmes in 1887 uh, for a study in Scarlet. Uh, the first of four novels and 56 short stories about Holmes and Dr. Watson. Uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories are milestones in the field of crime fiction. Yeah, want to learn some fun facts? Sure. This guy is famous enough. I got enough fun facts to get through this entire damn book. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was born on the 22nd of May, 1859. That's a fun fact. That's something that uh, I'm sure you're sitting around rubbing your prideful belly now that you know that. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was born 22nd of May, 1859. Just read that in Edinburgh, Scotland. His parents, Charles and Mary, were both Catholics. And Arthur Conan Doyle was uh, raised as such. In 1864, uh, when Arthur Conan Doyle they got to keep saying the full name every goddamn time, which is five years old. Oh, and the family was separated as a result of the father's increasing problems with alcohol. Uh, they would reunite again three years later in 1867. Was he dubbed Sir Arthur Conan Doyle at that point? This is a thing I don't really care that much, but I care a little bit, enough to talk about it, that uh, why does the you know, royalty of England keep knighting people all the time. And they're usually entertainers. You think you'd knight someone that saved a hundred lives or just looks good on a horse wearing metal, uh, metal outfit. Now, instead, it's just authors and, like, songwriters and stuff. It, for some reason, it seems to cheapen the title of Sir, but whatever. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle ran for Parliament twice. Uh... Again, the full name, Arthur Conan Doyle, was politically active throughout his uh, through his life in the early 1900s. He attempted to gain a seat in Parliament. He ran as a representative of the Liberal Unionist Party on two different occasions. Once in 1900, and again in 1906. He lost both elections, though uh, he came very close and earned a respectable amount of votes. 
That didn't fill up the time. No, grandfather clock hasn't bonged yet. Damn it. Um, what do I got to talk about? Well, my oldest uh, kid uh, said, Dad, Dad, I should get uh, a test for COVID. And I said, ah, crap, which is terrifying because you don't want to have a kid in the house with COVID. You're just going to sit there and watch them suffer the entire time. Uh, she's vaccinated, but still, she had a cough. Uh, not really a cough. Sore throat, uh, stuffy nose, just basic, you know, seasonal kind of stuff. It's been cold out lately, so going to bed at night with the windows wide open is uh, chilly. And so it probably caused this. And I said, ah, Christ. So my heart sank through my ass, and I took them uh, to get a COVID test. Trying to get a COVID test with an answer within a, like an hour or two. And uh, Walgreens said, oh, we can do that for you on their website. Oh, we can give you a result within an hour. And I said, oh, great. So I sat in line at the drive-thru of the pharmacy for like a solid half hour or more. I don't know. I said solid, like I knew how long it was. Oh, thank God. Anyways, we're not going to know the results uh, until three days from now. That was disheartening. But I'm sure she's fine. It's just a cough and uh, a little sore throat and stuffy nose. Nothing dramatic, no fever. Well, with that, let's, uh, let's get into the story. Chapter 3, The Problem. I confess, at these words, a shudder passed through me. Ah, There was a thrill in the doctor's voice which showed that he was himself deeply moved by that which he told us. Holmes leaned forward in his excitement, and his eyes uh, had a hard, dry glitter which shot through them, and he was keenly interested. At the death of people. Keep that in mind right now. You saw this? Oh, as clearly as I see you. And you said nothing? And what was the use? How was it that no one else saw it? Well, the marks were some 20 yards from the body, and no one gave them a thought. I don't suppose I should have done so had I uh, not known this legend. Now there's so many sheepdogs on the moor. Uh, No doubt, but there was no sheepdog. And you say it was large? Enormous. But it had not approached the uh, body? No. And what sort of night was it? Damp and raw? And not actually raining? No. And what was the, uh, what was the alley like? Well, there were two lines of old yew hedge, uh, 12 feet high and impenetrable. The walk in the center was about 8 feet across. Is there anything between the hedges and the walk? Yes. Uh, but there was a strip of grass about 6 feet broad on either side. All this detail is not needed. I understand that the yew hedge is penetrated at one point by a gate. Yes, the wicked gate, which leads out of the moor. Is there any other opening? None. Uh, So to reach the yew alley, uh, one either has to come down to it from the house or else enter it by the moor gate. There's an exit through a summer house at the far end. Has Sir Charles reached this? No. Uh, He lay about 50 yards from it. Now tell me, Dr. Mortimer, and this is important. The marks which you saw were on the path and not on the grass? No marks could show on the grass. Uh, were they on the same side of the path as the, uh, the Morgate? Yes, uh, they're on the edge of the path the same side as the Morgate. You interest me exceedingly. Uh, another, uh, another point. Uh, was the wicked gate closed? Closed and padlocked. 
Now, how high was it? About four feet high. Anyone else have uh, got over it? Yes. Uh, what marks did you see by the wicked gate? None in particular. Oh, good heaven. Uh, did no one examine? Yes, I examined myself. They found nothing. It was all very confused. Sir Charles had evidently stood there for, uh, I don't know, five or ten minutes. How do you know that? Because there was ash and had twice dropped from his cigar. Excellent. This is a colleague, Watson, after our own heart. But the marks... Oh, he'd left his own marks all over that small patch of gravel. I, I could discern no others. Sherlock Holmes struck his hand against his knee. Oh, that's kind of excited for a, for a murder. Uh, with an impatient gesture. If I had only been there, creepy... He cried, it is evidently the case of extraordinary interest and one which presented immense opportunities to the scientific expert. The gravel page upon which I might have read so much had long been ere this smudged by the rain and defaced by the clogs of curious peasants. Oh, Dr. Mortimer, Dr. Mortimer, to think that you could have not have called me in. Oh, you've indeed much to answer for. I gotta, I gotta call you in, Mr. Holmes, without disclosing these facts to the world, and I have already given my reasons for not wishing to do so. Besides, besides, M-dash. Why, why do you hesitate? Oh, there's a realm in which the most acute and most experienced of detectives is helpless. You mean the thing is mm, supernatural? I did not positively say so, but you, you evidently think it. Uh, since the tragedy, Mr. Holmes, there have come to my ears several my ears several incidents which are hard to reconcile with the settled order of nature. For example, well, I find that before the terrible event occurred, several people had seen a creature upon the moor which corresponds with this Baskerville demon, and, and which could not possibly be any animal known to science. Now, they all agreed that it was a huge creature, luminous, ghastly, and spectral. I have cross-examined these men, one of them a hard-headed countryman. What, what a eh, farrier. Eh, what a, a moorland farmer uh, who all tell the same story of the dreadful apparition, exactly corresponding to the hellhound of legend. I, I assure you that there is, there is a reign of terror in the district. And that is a, a, hardly a man who will cross the moor at night. And you, a, a trained man of science, believe it to be supernatural? Well, I don't know what to believe. Holmes shrugged his shoulders. I have hitherto confined my investigations to this world. And, and said he, in a modest way, I have combated evil. <laughs> but to take on the, the father of evil himself would perhaps be too ambitious a task. Yet you must admit that the footmark is material. Well, yeah, the original hound is material enough to tug a man's throat out. But yet he was a, a diabolical as well. I see you have quite gone over to the supernaturalist. Mm, yeah, but now, which is weird because this author is famous for believing in seances, ghosts, and ridiculousness. I think he there's a story of him talking to Harry Houdini, the author, the author, Sir... Arthur Conan Doyle, talking to Harry Houdini and said, you, sir, practice magic. And Harry Houdini said, no, I don't. It's just magic tricks. I learned how to do stuff. Have you ever heard of a uh, uh, sleight of hand? And he says, no, I think you're magic and you don't even know you are. That's how weird this author was. So for him to write this whole thing about how uh, supernaturalists are, 
or weirdos, is a little bit weird. Uh, but now, Dr. Mortimer, tell me this. If you hold these views, why have you come to consult me at all? You tell me in the same breath that it is useless to investigate Sir Charles's death, and that you desire me to do it? I did not say I desired you to do it. Then how can I assist you by advising me as to what I should do with Sir Henry Baskerville, who arrives at Waterloo Station? Dr. Mortimer looked at his watch. In exactly one hour and a quarter. Sounds like he's got somewhere to be in an hour and a quarter. Uh, he be in the air? Yes. On the death of Sir Charles, we inquired for this young gentleman and found that he had been farming in Canada. From the accounts which he have reached us in an excellent fellow in every way, I speak now as a medical man, but as a trustee and executor of Sir Charles's will. Now they know the Clement, I presume none. The only other kinsman for whom I've been able to trace was Roger Baskerville, the youngest of the three brothers of whom poor Sir Charles was the elder. The second brother, uh, who, uh, who died young, is the father of this lad, Henry. The third, Roger, was the black sheep of the family, and he came to the old masterful basketball strain, and uh, it was his very image. Oh, they tell me of the family picture of old Hugo. He made England too hot to hold him, and fled to Central America, and died there in uh, 1876 of uh, yellow fever. Henry is the last of the Baskervilles. In one hour and five minutes, I meet him. At Waterloo Station. I have had a wire that he arrived at Southampton this morning. Uh, now, uh, Mr. Holmes, what would you advise me to do with him? Uh, why, why should he not go to the home of his father's? That seems like a dumb thing to say. Oh, it seems natural, does it not? Nope, doesn't. And yet, consider that every Baskerville who goes there meets with an evil fate. That's the obvious thing that they said earlier. I feel sure that if Sir Charles could have spoken with me before his death, how oh, he would have warned me against bringing this. The, the last of the old race, weird, and the heir of great wealth to that deadly place. And yet, it cannot be denied that the prosperity of the whole poor, bleak countryside depends on his presence. All the good work which has been done by Sir Charles will crash to the ground if there's no tenant of the hall. I, I fear lest I should be swayed too much by my own obvious interest in the matter, and that is why I bring the case before you and ask you uh, for advice. Now, Holmes considered a little bit of time. Uh, put it in plain words, and the matter is this, said he. In your opinion, there is no diabolical agency which makes Dartmoor an unsafe abode for a Baskerville. That is, uh, 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 your opinion? Or well, at least I might go to the length of saying that there is some evidence that this may be so. Exactly, but surely if you have your supernatural theory to be correct, oh, I could work the young man uh, evil in London as easily as Devonshire. A devil with merely local powers like a parish vestry would be too inconceivable a thing. Well, you put the matter uh, more flippantly, Mr. Holmes, then you would probably do so if you were brought into a personal contact with these things. Oh, your advice, then as I understand it, is that the young man will be as safe in Devonshire as in London, and he comes in 50 minutes. Uh, uh, what, would you, what, would you, what would you recommend? I recommend, sir, that you take a cab. Call off your spaniel who is scratching at my front door and proceed to Waterloo to meet Mr. Henry Baskerville. <laughs> and then, and then you will say nothing to him at all until I have made up my mind about the matter. 
Well, how long will it uh, how long will it take you to make up your mind? Uh, 24 hours. That's a long time. At 10 o'clock tomorrow, Dr. Mortimer, I will be much obliged to you if you will call upon me here, and it will be of help to me in my plans for the future if you will bring Sir Henry Baskerville with you. Burp, I will do so, Mr. Holmes. He scribbled the appointment on his shirt cuff. That's weird. Just writing on your own clothes. What are these, uh, what are these poor people? And he hurried off in his strange, peering, absent-minded fashion. Oh, Holmes stopped him at the head of the stair. I, I, only one question, Dr. Mortimer. You say that before Sir Charles Baskerville's death, several people saw this apparition upon, upon the moor. Three people did. See it after? I don't hear of any. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Holmes. Holmes returned to his seat. With that, uh, with that quiet look of inward satisfaction, because he's a smug bastard, which meant that he had a, con- uh, a congenial task before him. I almost said conjugal. Uh, going out, Watson? Uh, unless I can help you. Uh, no, my dear fellow, it is at the hour of action that I turn to you for aid. Uh, but this is splendid, really unique from some points of view. Uh, would you pass Bradley's? Uh, would you ask him to send up a pound of the uh, strongest shag tobacco? Mm, eh, thank you. It would be as well if you could make it convenient not to return before evening. Then I should be very glad to compare impressions as to what the most interesting problem which has been submitted to us this morning. Well, I knew that seclusion and solitude were very necessary for my friend. Uh, who, in those hours of intense mental concentration during which he weighed uh, every particle of evidence, uh, constructed alternative theories, balanced one against the other, and made up his mind as to which points were essential and which were immaterial. I therefore spent the day at my club and did not return to Baker Street until mm, ah, evening. It was nearly nine o'clock when I found myself in the sitting room once more. Now, my first impression as I opened the door was that a, that a fire had broken out, for the room was so filled with smoke that the light of the lamp on the table was blurred by it. And as I entered, however, my, my fears were set at rest, for it was the, uh, the, uh, the acrid fumes of strong coarse tobacco which took me by the throat uh, and set me coughing. Oh, through the haze I had a vague vision of, of Holmes in his dressing gown, coiled up in an armchair with his black clay pipe between his lips. <laughs> Several rolls of paper lay around him. Uh, Cock cold, Watson, <laughs> said he. No, it's just this poisonous atmosphere. I suppose it's pretty thick. Uh, now you mentioned thick, it's intolerable. Uh, over the window, then. You've been at your club all day, I perceive. Oh, my dear Holmes. Am I right? Well, certainly, but how? Hey, he laughed. <laughs> my bewildered expression. Ah, there's a delightful freshness about you, Watson, which makes it a pleasure to exercise any small powers which I possess at your expense. A gentleman goes forth on a showery and miry, my, miry, my, why can't I say this word? It's only four letters. M-I-R-Y. Miry. I'm going with miry. Let's find out how you pronounce this. Miri, dang it, the first one is right. He returns immaculate at the evening with the gloss still on his hat and his boots. Oh, wow, a Miri day can be, can be glossy. He has been a fixture, therefore, all days. Not a man with intimate friends. Uh, where then could he have been? This not so obvious. 
Well, it's rather obvious. The world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. Uh, where, do you, where do you think that, that I've been? A fixture also. On the contrary, I've been to Devonshire. In spirit? Hmm? Exactly. My body has remained in this armchair and has, I regret to observe, consumed in my absence two large cons- uh, p- pots of coffee and an incredible amount of tobacco. After you left, I sent down to Stanford's for the ordnance map of this portion of the moor, and my spirit has hovered over it all day. I flatter myself yeah, that I could find my way about. A large-scale map, I presume? Ooh. Ooh. Very large. Uh, He unrolled one section and held it over his knee. Here you have the particular district which concerns us. That is Baskerville Hall in the middle. Uh, With a a wood around it? Exactly. I fancy the U Valley, though not marked under that name. I must stretch along this line with the moor, as you perceive, upon the right of it. This this small clump of buildings uh, here is the hamlet of Grippen. Grimpen? I said that wrong, Grimpen, where our friend Dr. Mortimer has his headquarters. Within a radius of uh, five miles, there are, as you see, only a very few scattered dwellings. Uh, Here's uh, Laughter Hall, which is mentioned in the narrative. Uh, There is a house indicated here, which may be the residence of the supernaturalist. uh, uh, Supernaturalist? Just the naturalist. I got ahead of myself there. Stapleton. If I remember right... It was his name. Uh, there are two more than farmhouses, High Tor and Foulmire, and uh, then 14 miles away, the great convict prison of Princetown. Uh, between and around these scattered points of extends the desolate and lifeless moor. Uh, this, then, is the stage upon which tragedy has been played and upon which we may help to play it again. Oh, it must be a wild place. Yes, the setting is a worthy one. If the devil did desire to have a hand in the affairs of men, then you are yourself inclining to the supernatural explanation. Oh, the devil's agents may be of flesh and blood. Uh, may they not? Yeah, there are two questions waiting for us at the outset. Uh, the one is whether any crime has been committed at all. Well, something happened. The second is, uh, what is the crime and how is it committed? Well, somebody got murdered, and it was murdered by tearing a man's throat out. And a woman died, too. I guess that doesn't matter in this story. Of course, if Dr. Mortimer's surmise should be correct, uh, we're dealing with forces outside the ordinary laws of nature, and there's an end to our investigation. Oh, but we're bound to exhaust all their hypotheses for falling back on this one. Uh, I think we'll shut that window again, uh, if you don't mind. It is a singular thing, but I find uh, that a concentrated atmosphere helps a concentration of thought. Oh, I've not pushed it to the length of getting into a box what to think but uh, this is my logic does he get in a box of my convictions but have you turned the case over in your mind yes I have thought a good deal of it in the course of a day uh, wait, uh, wait, uh, what do you make of it oh, it's very bewildering it certainly has a character of its own uh, there are points of distinction about it the change in the footprints for example burp what do you make of that now nah, Mortimer said that the man had walked on tippy toe down that portion of the alley Oh, he only repeated what some other fool had said at the inquest. Uh, why should a man walk on tippy-toe? Down, I'm, it's tiptoe. I'm just being cute. Uh, down the alley. Uh, what then? Well, he was running. Watson, running desperately. Running for his life. Running until he burst his heart. It fell dead upon the face. Uh, 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 running from what? 
Now, there lies a problem. There are indications that the man was crazed with fear before he ever began to run. Now, how can you say that? I'm presuming that the cause of his fears came to him across the board. And if that were so, and it seems to be most probable, only a man who had lost his wits would have run from the house instead of toward it. If uh, if the gypsy's evidence hopefully, uh, may be taken as true, uh, he ran with cries for help in the direction where help was least likely to be. Then again, who was he waiting for that night? And why was he waiting for him in the U Valley uh, rather than, than, than his own house? Hmm. Well, you think that he was waiting for someone? Well, the man was elderly and infirm. We can understand his taking an evening stroll. And the ground was damp and the night was inclement, and it was natural that he should stand for five or uh, ten minutes, as Dr. Mortimer, with a more practical sense that I should have given him credit for, deduced from the cigar ash. But uh, he went out every evening. Now, I think it unlikely that he waited at the moor gate every morning. On the contrary, the evidence is that he avoided the moor, and that he, uh, that night he waited there, and it was the night before that he made his departure for London. The thing takes shape. Watson, it becomes coherent. Might I ask you to hand me my violin? And we will postpone it all further upon uh, the business until we have had the advantage of meeting Dr. Mortimer and Sir Henry Baskerville in the morning. Well, that seems like a nice uh, end of a chapter. Why don't we uh, take a little break? Grab yourself a white claw. Go on, get up to the bedroom. Go on, get. Yeah. Okay, I'm coming. Almost there. All right, here I am. Oh, 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 you're wearing a pantsuit. You're up here in the master bedroom, and all you planned on wearing to arouse me sexually is just a pantsuit. Well, I'm not going to complain. Last week you wore a pie tin, like some sort of weird costume, which, uh, which uh, made me want to throw up. I'll be honest with you. It's disturbing. I didn't like it at all. Well, uh, take off that pantsuit. Instead, put on this... Adorable little Christmas hat that's really, really, real, real small. Like, so small, it needs a little little band to go around under your chin to keep it on your head. It's adorable. Yeah. Um, we're going to read uh, from Penguin Random House Books Romance Section, a new upcoming romance novel called A Very Nantucket Christmas by Nancy Thayer. Want to learn about it? Sure, that's why you're here. That's why you tune in every week. Celebrate the holidays with New York Times bestselling author. Oh, my God. It's a scam. Everyone's a New York Times bestselling author. I've been over this multiple times. I'm not going to go off my soapbox again. Author Nancy Thayer in this festive collection featuring two heartwarming tales set on Nantucket Island. That's fun. Uh, as sweet and warm as uh, as a fresh baked cookie, says RT Book Reviews, whatever the hell that is. Yuletide season's wonderful traditions are much loved by Nicole Somerset. New to Nantucket and recently married to a, mm, a handsome former attorney? How old is this guy? What is he, like 70? But the uh, cheerful mood is soon tempered by Nicole's chilly stepdaughter, Kennedy, who arrives without a hint of holiday spirit. Ugh. 
the worst kind, determined to uh, keep her stepmother at arm's length, or better yet, out of the picture altogether. Old Kennedy's schemes to sabotage Nicole's first Christmas with her new husband, her new old husband, yet in the season of miracles, holiday joy has a way of coming to all, both naughty and nice. Well, there's nothing exciting about that. So apparently this is a two-parter book because it says A Very Nantucket Christmas uh, by uh, Nancy Thayer. But also it's two holiday novels. One is also uh, uh, An Island Christmas, which sounds festive. Thayer vividly depicts the joys and frustrations of family life against the beautiful Nantucket backdrop. Someone's obsessed with a certain location and every book's written about it. It's Christmas time and Felicia has returned to her family's home on the island to marry her rugged boyfriend, Archie. It's not a rugged name. Every snow-dusted street and twinkling light is a picture perfect for a dream wedding. Except a lavish ceremony is not Felicia's dream at all. Oh, it's what her mother, Jilly, wants. There, Moms, they're the worst. Wish mine was still alive, though. Worried that her daughter's life with Daredevil Archie... <laughs> Archie is not a cool name. <laughs> we'll all be hiking and skydiving. Oh, Jilly embarks on a secret matchmaking campaign for Felicia and her handsome neighbor, Stephen Hardy. Now that is a badass name, Stephen Hardy. With the arrival of Jilly's older daughter, Lauren, fueling tensions, the family careening toward a wedding disaster, an unexpected twist reminds everyone of the true meaning of the season. Well, with that, I brought up my dead mom, so now I'm not horny anymore. Uh, take off that tiny, adorable little Santa hat, and, uh, and, uh, I don't know, just put your clothes back on. Let's go downstairs and finish the rest of the story. All right, well, now that we're back, why don't we settle in to Chapter 4, Sir Henry Baskerville. Our breakfast table was cleared early, and Holmes waited in his dressing gown for the promised interview. Our clients were punctual to their appointment, for, for the clock had just struck ten when Dr. Mortimer was shown up. What? When Dr. Mortimer was shown up. That's not correct. Burp. <laughs> Followed by the young baronet. Oh, the latter was a, a small, alert, dark-eyed man, about, uh, eh, I don't know, 30 years of age, uh, very sturdily built, with uh, thick, black eyebrows and a, and a strong, uh, pugnacious face. What does pugnacious mean, exactly? Let's find that out. I've heard the word before. It's not like it's new to me. Eager or quick to argue, quarrel or fight. Uh, okay, well, then he's a jerk. He wore a ruddy-tinted tweed suit and uh, had the weather-beaten appearance of uh, one who has spent most of his time in the open air, and yet there was something in his steady eye and the quiet assurance of his bearing which indicated the gentleman. This is uh, Sir Henry Baskerville, said Dr. Mortimer. Why, yes, said he. And the strange thing is, uh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, that if my friend here had not proposed coming round to you this morning, I should have uh, come on my own account. Oh, I understand that you uh, think out <laughs> yeah, little puzzles, uh, and I've had one this morning which wants more thinking out than I am able to uh, give it. Pray. Take a seat, Sir Henry. Uh, do I understand uh, you to say that you uh, have yourself had some remarkable experience since you uh, arrived in London? 
Bah, nothing much of importance, uh, Mr. Holmes. Only a joke, uh, as like as not. It was this letter, if you can call it a letter, which reached me this morning. He laid an envelope upon the table, and we all bent over it. Oh, it's of common quality, yeah, grayish in color. Uh, the address, Sir Henry Baskerville, Northumberland Hotel, was printed in rough characters. Uh, the postmark, uh, Charing Cross, at the date of posting the preceding evening. Uh, who knew what you were going to Northumberland, Northumberland Hotel? Uh, asked Holmes, glancing, glancing, I can't speak, keenly across our visitor. Uh, no one could have known. We only decided after I met Dr. Mortimer. But Dr. Mortimer was no doubt already stopping there. No, uh, I had been staying with a friend, said the doctor. Uh, there was no possible indication that we intended to go to this hotel. Hum, exclamation point. Someone seems to be very deeply interested in your movements. Out of the envelope, he took a half sheet of fool's cap paper and folded it to four. This he opened and spread flat upon the table. Across the middle of it, a single sentence had been formed by the expedient of pasting words upon it, and it ran. As you value your life or your reason, keep away from the more. The word, quote, more, unquote, only was printed in ink. Now, said Henry uh, Baskerville, perhaps you will tell me, Mr. Holmes, what in thunder is the meaning of that? Anyway, who is it take so much interest in my affairs? Uh, what do you make of it, Dr. Mortimer? You must allow that. There is nothing supernatural about this at any rate. No, sir, but it might as well come from someone who is convinced that the business is supernatural. Uh, what business? asked Sir Henry sharply. It seems to me that all you gentlemen know a great deal more than I do about my own affairs. Oh, you shall share your knowledge before you leave this room, Sir Henry. I promise you that, said Sherlock Holmes. We will confine ourselves for the present, with your permission, to this very interesting document, which must have been put together and posted yesterday evening. Uh, have, you, have you yesterday's times, Watson? It's here in the corner. Might I trouble you for it? Uh, the inside page, please, with the, with the leading articles? He glanced swiftly over it. Running his eyes up and down the columns. Oh, capital article. Uh, this is on a, a free trade. Permit me to give you an extract from it. You may be cajoled into imagining that your own special trade or your own industry will be encouraged by a productive tariff. But it stands reason that such long legislation, such long run, uh, keep away wealth from the country, diminish the value of our imports, and lower the general conditions of life in this island. And what do you think of that, Watson? cried Holmes in a high glee, rubbing his hands together with a satisfaction. And don't you think that's an admirable sentiment? Well, Dr. Mortimer looked at Holmes with an air of professional interest, and Sir Henry Baskerville turned a pair of puzzled dark eyes upon me. Well, I don't know much about the tariff and things of that kind, said he, but it seems to me we've got a bit of a off the trail, as far as I know is concerned. Well, on the contrary, I think we are particularly hot upon the trail. Sir Henry Watson here knows more about my methods than you do, but I fear that even he has not quite grasped the significance of the sentence. No, I confess that I see no connection. And yet, my dear Watson, there is so very close a connection that the one is extracted out of the other. You, in quotes, your, in quotes, your, in quotes, life, in quotes, reason, in quotes, value, in quotes, keep away, in quotes, from the, in quotes. <laughs> Don't you see now whence these words have been taken? Oh, by thunder, you're right. Well, eh, that isn't smart, cried Sir Henry. 
If any possible doubt remained, it is settled by the fact that uh, keep away and from the are cut out of one piece. Well now, so it is. Really, Mr. Holmes, this exceeds anything which I could have imagined, said Dr. Mortimer, gazing at my friend in amazement. I could understand anyone saying that the words were from a newspaper, but that uh, you should name which and add that it came from the leading article is really one of the most remarkable things which I've ever known. How'd you do it? Well, I presume, Doctor, that you uh, you could tell the skull of a ooh N-word. Wow, that just got thrown in there. I wasn't prepared for that. I almost said it. I was just on a roll reading, and then also that jumped out at me. Thank God I was able to stop my racist mouth. Uh, from that of a Esquimau? Esquim- Esquimau? Oh, boy, is this more racism than I'm just not aware of? Let's look that one up. Oh, Eskimo. But they spelled it weird. Okay, well, still a jerk comment. Most certainly, how? Because that is my special hobby. The differences are obvious. The supraorbital crest, the facial angle, the maxillary curve, the... But this is my special hobby, and the differences are equally obvious. There is as much difference to my eyes between the lead bourgeoisie type of a Times article and the slovenly print of an evening halfpenny paper uh, that there could be between your N-word ugh, and your Eskimo, which is spelt all weird. So they're already talking about facial structures and what this is just all horrible. The detection of types is one of the most elementary branches of knowledge. To the ex- uh, special expert in crime, though I confess, uh, I confess that once when I was very young, I confused, confused the Leeds Mercury with the Western Morning News. But a Times leader is entirely distinctive. <laughs> and these words could have been taken from nothing else. As it was done yesterday, the strong probability was that we should find the words in yesterday's issue. Oh, so far as I can follow you then, Mr. Holmes, said Sir Henry Baskerville, someone cut out this message with a... with a scissors. Nail scissors, says Holmes. Can't anyone be right in this story? Can't anyone just say, looks like they used the scissors? Nah, no, nail scissors, just I'm tired of it. Can you see that this is a very short-bladed scissors since the cutter had to take two snips over keep away... Ah, that is so. Someone then cut out the message with a pair of short-bladed scissors, pasted it with paste gum, said Holmes. See, you can't. You can't have anything be right. Tedious. Uh, Holmes is laborious and obnoxious. Gum, said Holmes, with gum to the paper, but I want to know why the word more should have been written. Because I couldn't find it in the print. In the other words, are all simple. It might have been found in the issue, but more uh, would be less common. Oh, why, of course, that would explain it. What about the word more with an E at the end? You just crop off the E or take your pen and cross out the E. I'm sure the word more is in the paper somewhere. Why, of course, that would explain it. Have you read anything else in this message, Mr. Holmes? Well, there are one or two indications, and yet the utmost pains have been taken to remove all clues. The address, you observe, is printed in rough characters, but the Times is a paper which seldom found in any hands but those of the highly educated. Well, poor people can pick up an old copy off the ground that a rich person dropped, but we may take it, therefore, that the letter was composed by an educated man who wished to pose as an uneducated one. This is oversimplified, and his effort to conceal his own writing suggests that that writing might be known or come to be known by you. Again, you will observe that the words are not gummed on in an accurate line, but that uh, some are much higher than others. Life 
for example, is quite out of its proper place. That may point to carelessness, or it might point to agitation. Hurry upon the part of the cutter, and on the whole, I incline to the latter view, since the, uh, the matter was evidently important. Then it's unlikely that the composer of such a letter would be careless. If he were in a, in a hurry, it opens up the interesting question of why he'd be in a hurry. Aha! It says any letter posted up in the early morning would reach Sir Henry before he would leave his hotel. Did the, did the composer fear an interruption? Eh? And from whom? We are coming now rather into the region of guesswork, said Dr. Mortimer. I say rather into the region of where we balance probabilities and choose the most likely. It is the scientific use of imagination, but we have always had some material basis on which to start our speculation. Now, you would call it a guess, no doubt, but I am almost certain that this address has been written in a hotel. How the work you say that? Now, if you examine it carefully, you will see that both the pen and the ink have given the writer trouble. And the pen has splattered twice in a single word and has run dry three times in short address, showing that there was a very little ink in the bottle. Now, a private pen or an ink bottle is seldom allowed to be in such a state, and the combination of the two must be quite rare. But if you know the hotel ink and the hotel pen, where it is rare to get anything else, yes... I have very little hesitation in saying that we could examine the waste paper baskets of the hotels around Charing Cross until we found the remains of the mutilated Times leader. Uh, we could lay on our hands straight upon the person who sent this regular, singular message. Hello, uh, hello, uh, what is this? Ah, he was carefully examining the fool's cap upon which the words were pasted, holding it only an inch or two from his eyes. Well, uh, nothing said he, throwing it down. There is blank half-sheet of paper without even a watermark upon it. I think we have drawn as much as we can from this curious letter. And now, Sir Henry, has anything else of interest happened to you since you've been uh, in London? Uh, well, no, Holmes, I think not. Uh, you've not uh, observed anyone follower watch you? Well, I seem to have walked right into the thick of a dime novel, <laughs> said our visitor. Why in thunder should anyone follower watch me? Now we're coming to that. Oh, you have nothing else to report to us before we go into this matter? Yeah, it depends upon what you think is worth reporting. Well, I think out of the ordinary routine of life is well worth reporting. Now, sir, Henry smiled. Yeah, I don't know much about British life yet. Yeah, but I've nearly spent all my time in the States and in Canada. But I hope to lose uh, one of your boots. It's not part of the ordinary routine of life over here. Oh, you've, uh, you've lost one of your boots? Uh, my dear sir, cried Dr. Mortimer, it's only mislaid, and you will find it when you return to the hotel. What is the use of troubling Mr. Holmes with trifles of this kind? Well, he asked me for anything outside the ordinary routine. Exactly, said Holmes. However foolish the incident may seem, you have lost one of your boots, you say? Well, mislaid anyhow. I put uh, them both outside my door last night, and then there was only one this morning. I can get no sense out of the chap who cleans them. And the worst of it is that I only uh, bought the pair just last night in the Strand, and I have never had them on. If you if you'd never worn them, uh, why'd you put them out to be clean? Oh, they were tan boots, and they'd never been varnished. And that was why I put them out. Uh, then understand that on your arrival to London yesterday, you went out at once and bought a pair of boots. Oh, I did a good deal of shopping, said Dr. Mortimer. We here went round with me. You see... 
I am to be squire down there. I must dress the part, and it may be that I've got a little careless in my ways out west. Among other things, I bought uh, these brown boots, gave six dollars for them, and had one stolen before I ever had them on my feet. Now, it seems a seemingly useless thing to steal, says Sherlock Holmes. I confess that I share Dr. Mortimer's belief that it will not be long before the missing boot is found. And now, gentlemen, said the baronet with decision, it seems to me that I have spoken quite enough about the, about the little that I know. It is time that you kept your promise and give me a full account of what we are all driving at. Your request is a reasonable one, Holmes answered. Dr. Mortimer, I think you should could not do better than to tell your story as you told it to us. Thus encouraged, our scientific friend drew his papers from his pocket and presented the whole case as he'd done upon the morning before. Oh, Sir Henry Bassfield listened uh, with the deepest attention and with an occasional exclamation of surprise. Oh, well, I seem to have come into an inheritance with a vengeance, uh, said he, when the long narrative was finished. Of course, I've uh, heard of the hound ever since I was in the nursery. Uh, it's the pet story of the family, though I never thought of taking it seriously before. Uh, but as my uncle's death, well, it seems boiling up in my head. I can't get it clear enough yet. Uh, you don't seem uh, quite to have made up your mind whether it's a case for a policeman or a clergyman. Precisely, uh, and now there's this affair of the letter to me at the hotel, and I suppose that fits in place. That seems to show that someone knows more uh, than we do about what goes on in the moor, said Dr. Mortimer. And also, said Holmes, that someone is not ill-disposed towards you since they warn you of danger. Or it may be that they wish for their own purposes to scare you away. Well, of course, yeah, that's possible. Yeah, also, but, but I'm uh, much indebted to you, Dr. Mortimer, for introducing me to a problem which presents several interesting alternatives. Uh, but the practical point, which we have now to decide, Sir Henry, is whether it is or not uh, advisable for you to go to Baskerville Hall. Uh, uh, why should I not go? Uh, there seems to be danger. Do you mean danger from this family fiend? Or do you mean uh, danger from human beings? Well, that's uh, what we have to find out. Well, whichever it is, my answer is fixed. There's no devil in hell, Mr. Holmes. There is no man upon earth who can prevent me from going to the home of my own people. And you have to take that to be my final answer. His dark brows knitted and his face flushed to a dusky red as he spoke. Oh, it was evident that the fiery temper of the Baskervilles was not extent in their ex ex extinct in that theirs was their last representative. Meanwhile said he. I have hardly had time to think over all that you have told me. It's a big thing for a man to have to understand and to decide at one sitting. Oh, I should like to have a quiet hour by myself and to make up my mind. Now look here, Mr. Holmes. It's half past eleven now, and I'm going to go right back away to my hotel. Suppose you and your friend, uh, Dr. Watson, come round and lunch with us at two. Oh, I'll be able to tell you more clearly than this how this thing strikes me. This is going to drag out for chapters. Oh, it's uh, convenient for you, Watson. <laughs> Perfectly. Then you may expect it. Shall I have a cab called? I prefer to walk, for this affair has flurried me, rather. Now I'll join you in a walk with pleasure, said his companion. Then we'll meet again at two o'clock. Au revoir. <laughs> Good morning. We've heard the steps of our visitors descend the stair and the bang of the front door. In an instant, Holmes had changed from the languid dreamer to the man of action. Your hat and boots, Watson. Quick, not a moment to lose. 
He rushed to his room. In his dressing gown, he was back again in a few seconds in a frock coat, uh, and we hurried together down the stairs and onto the street. Oh, Dr. Mortimer and Baskerville were still visible, now about 200 yards ahead of us in the direction of Oxford Street. Shall I run on and stop them? No, not for the world, my dear Watson. I am perfectly satisfied with your company, and if you will tolerate mine, our friends are wise, for it is certainly a very fine morning for a walk. He quickened his pace till we decreased the distance and divided us by about half. Then, still keeping a hundred yards behind, uh, we followed at Oxford Street and so down Regent Street. And once his friends stopped, stared into a shop window, upon which Holmes did the same. An instant afterwards, he gave a little cry of satisfaction, and following the direction of his eager eyes, I saw that a handsome cab, ha, with a man inside which he had halted on the other side of the street, was now proceeding slowly onward again. Uh, there's our man, Watson. Come along. It's a good look at him. If we can do no more. At that instant, I was aware of a bushy black beard and a pair of piercing eyes turned upon us through the side window of the cab. Instantly, the trap door at the top flew up. Something was screamed to the driver, and the cab flew madly off down Regent Street. Holmes looked eagerly round for another, but no empty one was in sight. Then he dashed in a wild pursuit amid the stream of the traffic. Ah, but the start was too great, and already the cab was out of sight. Ah, there now, said Holmes, bitterly as he emerged, panting with a, with a, with a, with a vexation from the tide of vehicles. Was ever such a bad luck and such uh, bad management, too? Watson, Watson, if you're an honest man, you will record this. Also, set it against my successes. Uh, who, uh, who, is a, who is a man? No, I have not an idea. Uh, a spy? Well, it was evident uh, from what we have heard that Baskerville has been very closely shadowed by someone since he has been in town. How else could it be known so quickly? that it was the Northumberland Hotel which he had chosen. If they had, if they had followed him the first day, I argue that they would follow him also the second. You may have observed that I twice strolled over to the uh, window while Dr. Mortimer was reading his legend. Oh, oh yes, I remember. And I was looking out for loiterers in the street, but I saw none. We are dealing with a clever man, Watson. It matters, the matter cuts very deep. And though I have not finally made up my mind, whether it's a benevolent or a benevolent agency uh, which is in touch with us, I am uh, conscious always of power and design. And, uh, but when our friends left, I at once followed them in the hopes of marking down their invisible attendant. Oh, so wily was he that he had not trusted himself upon his foot. Oh, but he had availed himself of a cab uh, so that he could loiter. Uh, behind or dash uh, past them, so escape their notice. Ah, uh, his method had the additional advantage that they were to take a cab, and he was all ready to follow them. It has, however, one obvious disadvantage. Uh, it puts him in the power of the cabman. Exactly. Ah, oh, what a pity we did not get the number. My dear Watson, clumsy as I may have been, you surely do not seriously imagine that I neglected to get the number. Of course not. He's perfect in everything he does. Number 2704 is our man. But that's no use for us at the moment. I fail to see how you could have done more. On observing the cab, I should have instantly turned and walked in the other direction. I should have, at my leisure, have hired a second cab uh, and followed the first at a respectful distance, or better still, have driven to the Northumberland Hotel and waited there. When our unknown had followed Baskerville home, he should have had the opportunity of uh, playing his own game upon himself and seeing where he made for. As it is, by an indiscreet eagerness which has taken advantage of the extraordinary quickness and the energy of our opponent, uh, we have betrayed ourselves and lost our man. 
Oh, he had been sauntering slowly down Regent Street during this conversation, and, 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 and Dr. Mortimer, with his companion, had long vanished in front of us. Ah, there's no object in our following them, said Holmes. The shadow has departed and will not return, and we must see what further cards we have in our hands and play them with decision. Uh, could you swear uh, to that man's face within the cab? Oh, I could swear only to the beard. Ah, uh, so could I. From which I gather that on all probability it was a false one. Oh, a clever man, so delicate in his errand, has no use for a beard, eh, eh, save to conceal his, his, his features. Uh, come in here, Watson. He turned on to one of the district messenger offices where he was warmly greeted by the manager. Ah, oh, Wilson, I see you have not forgotten the little case in which I had the good fortune to help you. No, sir, I have not. You saved my good name and perhaps my life. This is kind of like any of those uh, boy sleuth stories, like the Hardy Boys and stuff. Like everyone they talk to, there's been some weird, mysterious case they've worked on, and they all owe him. They'd probably get free ice cream for the rest of their lives, like that one movie. My dear fellow, you exaggerated. I have some recollection, Wilson, that you had among your boys a lad named Cartwright who showed some ability during the investigation. Oh, yes, sir. He is still with us. Uh, could, could you rig him up? Uh, thank you. And I should be glad to have change of this five-pound note. And a lad of 14 with a bright, keen face had obeyed the summons of the manager, and he stood now gazing with a great reverence at the famous detective. Oh, oh, let me have the hotel directory, said Holmes. Why did I say it like that? <laughs> Thank you. Now, Cartwright, there are the names of 23 hotels here, all in the immediate neighborhood of Charing Cross. And, and, and do you see... Yes, sir. And will you visit each of these in turn? Yes, sir. And we begin with each case by giving the outside porter one shilling and then there are 23 shillings? Yes, sir. And will you tell him uh, that you want to see the waste paper of yesterday and you'll say that the important telegram is miscarried and that you were looking for it, you understand? Yes, sir. But what are you really looking for is the center page of the Times with some holes cut in the scissors. Uh, there's a copy of the Times. Uh, this is the page. Uh, you could... Easily recognize it, could you not? Yes, sir. In case the outside porter will send for the hall porter, to whom also you will give a shilling, here are 23 shillings, and you will then learn in possibly 20 cases out of the 23 that the waste of the day before has been burned or removed. In the three other cases, you will be shown a heap of paper, and you will look at this page of the month times among it, and the odds are enormously against you finding it. There are ten shillings over in the case of emergencies. Let me have a report by the wire at Baker Street before evening. And now, Watson, it only remains for us to find out by wire. The identity of the cabman, number 2704. And then we will drop into one of the Bond Street picture galleries and fill the time until we are due uh, at the hotel. Now with that, why don't we retire to the smoking room and uh, try to figure out what the hell we just read. Why don't you settle yourself in? Uh, so what the hell happened? Uh, chapter three. Sherlock Holmes brags a lot. Gets a big map. That was pretty cool. Big maps cool. Uh, then uh, chapter four. 
he talks to the, the hound of Baskerville's guy. And uh, I don't even know what happened. Just a lot of bragging. A lot of details, a lot of bragging. A lot of newspaper cutouts and how poor people don't read certain papers. Uh, and, of course, it's an educated man. And then it was phrenology, like, oh, the bumps on their skull. Oh, you should see the bumps on their skull. You can tell if they're a criminal or a genius. Uh, so that's all horse shit. Uh, I don't know. Uh, basically, I just read a lot of crap. Uh, why am I so fussy? I've had a long day. So, uh, I don't know. He brags a lot, uh, claims to know the Pope, and, uh, and knows everything about every newspaper and everything ever that has ever existed in the country of England. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, what's good about this? Uh, if you like reading about someone who's, uh, believes that he's a smart man, then, uh, boy, is this book for you. Uh, what sucks? I don't like people that believe they're smart men. Uh, what do we learn? That, um, when an author of a certain level of intelligence, I'm not saying he's unintelligent, he's an intelligent man. I mean, later on, he did believe in, like, people being able to do mind reading and, uh, and all sorts, like summoning ghosts. He was kind of a weird guy. He started his own little paranormal library and stuff. Uh, as I said before, he once told Harry Houdini, uh, I don't think you actually do magic like you say. I think you actually are magic. You just don't realize it yet. So that's not a logical man. That's not a very intelligent man. Uh, he's the one writing a book about someone smarter than him. So it's going to have flaws. Uh, so, uh, yeah, what do we learn? Uh, don't write a book if you believe in the bumps and skulls having something to do with your intelligence. If you believe that, don't write any books. Let's get to write books about bumps on skulls. But uh, don't write a book about a smarter man than you are. Boy, am I crabby. I'm tired. I've had a long day. Really weird long day. So with that, I'm going to let you go. And uh, maybe next week, uh, Ben and I will finish reading that one book. Uh, and then uh, I'll read more of this crap later. Thanks for listening. And uh, see you later. Ah, uh, well, it appears you found me in the part of the podcast I hate the most where I tell you all about the places on the internet where you can find me. You can tell I hate this because of the sound effects making it sound like a stormy night uh, in the drawing room of the damned. Now, there's there's that. Uh, I, I, are you cool? I like cool people. It's the reason why I got involved in this business to begin with, just to meet cool people. Not losers. So if you're cool, uh, feel free to go over to my website, uh, nuzzlehouse.com. You can see a backlog of everything I've ever read, uh, along with episodes from the Book Boys and uh, blah, blah, blah. You can also find me on Instagram, uh, which is uh, House Nuzzle. And conveniently enough, uh, Twitter, which is also at House Nuzzle. Annoyingly, YouTube made me pick a name instead of just a house nuzzle. So you got Glenn Nuzzles. So I guess you search for that if you want to watch a screen that doesn't do anything and just hear my voice. Uh, and since, uh, since I think you might be cool, you can always just email me directly. Glenn.nuzzles at gmail.com But don't, uh, don't email if you're a, a nerdlinger or a dork. Now, back to business. 
can't believe I drank all of them already. There's gotta be one left. 